Onscript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at Onscript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Onscript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Onscript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I hope that you're all doing well. Just a quick note, uh, thanks to Jason Stark for producing this episode and also to Chris Tilling for being willing to interview me about my book. I hope you enjoy hearing about it. It's fun to be able to share that with all of you. And thanks so much to those of you who support the podcast. If you'd like to do so, you can go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and you can give that way. Uh, We really appreciate those of you who, who have been able to. And if you'd like to share the word, give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that helps too. All right, let's get on with the episode. Well, welcome back to a special episode of On Script. I mean, this time, none other than our own Matt Lynch mm. is <laughs> being interviewed about his his new book. And I don't know if we've done this before. I mean, I'm going to introduce you simply. Uh, you know, like we would any other author, and and I think there might be some surprises in store here for for folk. <laughs> so Matt, Matt received a BA in Biblical Studies from Keown University back in two thousand and one, an MA later on at Regent College, two thousand four, and a THM in two thousand eight. And you followed that up with a PhD at Emory University in two thousand and twelve, and you then joined. Westminster Theological Center in the UK, which is when I think I got to know you, serving for seven mm-hmm. years there in various roles from Dean of Studies to lecturer in Old Testament. And finally, you joined Regent faculty back in 2020. And since then, I think it was last, last year, right? 2022, you were promoted to Associate Professor of, of Old Testament. And he's published a lot of books. The, the first, I think this is in chronological order, you can correct me if it's wrong, but it was Monotheism and Institutions in the Book of Chronicles with Moore Zeebeck um, back in 2014, and then Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible with Cambridge 2020, and First Isaiah and the Disappearance of the Gods, Ice and Browns 2021, and, and now the subject of today's conversation flood and fury engaging old testament violence with ivp and if you've been living under a rock he's also the co-founder and co-host of this very podcast welcome matt lynch to unscript oh well chris thanks so much it's weird to be on the other side of the table here but uh but thanks well this this has been a lot of fun reading reading your book flood and and fury i mean it's it's a tremendously rich uh, read of just over 200 pages filled with illustrations. Even, even an idiot like me can f- follow what you're doing in, at every point. Easy to grasp. It's amazing. That's a miracle, I think. And you, you patiently go through scripture. Um, whole swathes of text are brought to the fore. Um, so it's, a, it's quite an ambitious book, I'd say. Uh, given you know that the kind of questions you're dealing with, you, you're taken into the text in a in a very unique way, and obviously something I like is humorous. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be humorous or it goes in the bin. But I, I love the story of of your son enacting the ambush of of I in Joshua eight. I mean, 
I'll let I'll let the readers just get the book, but I, I could easily imagine the church laughing nervously there. <laughs> it was quite a moment. One thing I'll say as well about this, I, I like to roast coffee beans. It's one of my little hobbies, and I'll read books when I'm roasting coffee beans. It was a bad idea reading your book because I was drawn in so much. It was difficult to keep an eye on the time and uh, the coffee beans. Did you burn no, it? I just about turned it around in time, but I was suffering with the timing, mm. which is your fault, so you owe me a coffee. Um, okay. I all three, <laughs> but maybe we could begin with a question. You know what? You know why did you write this book? Yeah, the book kind of comes out of a number of uh, influences, and there are several reasons for writing the book. I didn't have like one driving reason, and I, I guess it might surprise some people to to hear that the problem of violence in scripture is not this problem that has just dogged me relentlessly. Um, it's something I. I care about and think about. But in many ways, like I saw that the question of violence in the Bible is is a really fruitful occasion for thinking through a whole number of related issues that converge on that one problem. And that's why I find it so interesting and important. Yes, I do have my own questions and hangups with violence in the Bible, but that wasn't like the main impetus. And I talk in the book about some of the context out of which it comes, what like experiences I had in undergrad um, and in grad school as well. Um, and then also when I went to WTC and the kinds of questions I got a lot as a lecturer from students, it's like, okay, I need to sort of write out my thoughts a bit more systematically. And I initially did that in a series of blog posts on the WTC blog uh, site and and then I did like a five-part review of Greg Boyd's Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I was teaching on Joshua. So I had a lot of like teaching material on this subject. And then when I came to Regent, I was teaching a seminar on Joshua. So there was there was a lot behind it. And I think it was realizing that in that discussion there was something missing, which is how does the Bible itself think about the problem of violence when it's thinking about it as a problem? And so that's why I wrote the previous book on portraying violence in the Hebrew Bible to sort of ask that ground up question of the Bible's own categories for wrestling with violence or for portraying it. And then I wanted to do a top down study, and that's what this is of how do we then, as Christians, wrestle with violent texts? Well, it kind of leads us into the first part. You've got four parts in the book. And the first one is where you're re outlining the problem and particular ways of dealing with the problem that may fall a little short. Um, maybe, maybe you could just talk us through the various approaches to dealing with violence in the Old Testament, and perhaps by way of contrast to your own um, angle, um, mention how you move away or in a different direction from Marcion or, or Greg Boyd, big names in. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Big uh, Boyd would not <laughs> want to be mentioned in the same breath with him. But uh, although he does say at, at one point that he he respects Marcion's boldness and and has a, a high regard, at least for his his disgust toward violence in the Old Testament. So Marcion. Uh, lived in the early 100s and and was a uh, considered a heretic by the church, rightly so. He he wanted to dispense with the Old Testament, not primarily or exclusively because of violence in the Old Testament, 
um, but it was a factor in insofar as God had emotions like wrath that spilled over into violence and that showed in Marcion's view that this was a God unbecoming of the God and Father of Jesus. And, and so, so Marcion wanted to, uh, he got rid of the Old Testament and, and in the process had to get rid of a lot of the New Testament because it's all intertwined and ended up with a few letters of Paul and, and Gospel of Luke. I, I don't even think it's the whole Gospel of Luke. And, and so he, uh, and there were a number of Marcionite churches and it was very influential. It wasn't just his own out there view. He was part of a larger resistance to certain portraits of God in the Old Testament that we find. So I think I don't really need to give a detailed rationale for why that's problematic um, for, for Christian thinking, um, but, it, but it, does, uh, under, it shows that undermining the Old Testament undermines the New Testament as well. I think that's part of the insight of what Marcion did. And there are a number of other kind of responses or approaches to violence in the Old Testament. And so you have everything from the divine command theory, which is championed perhaps most prominently by Augustine and Calvin. And, and that basically says that if God commands something, then it's by definition just. And, and so, and, and what that view is trying to protect is the idea that there's some standard higher than God to which God is beheld. And so there's a, there's a good impulse behind that idea, and it raises an important question about, like, is there some standard that's higher than God, that God you know, named justice, that God has to adhere to? And, um, and there are problems with that as well. And I talk about the, maybe sort of the insights and the disadvantages of each of these approaches. Um, the obvious disadvantage is that it can sever the connection between notions of divine justice and human justice and what God calls us to in imitating God's justice. So if it's not something that can be known or imitated, then there's this sort of radical disconnect between God's justice and what we're called to in the world. Uh, and also it ignores the, the huge tradition in scripture of questioning God's justice and, and even calling God to act justly. When Abraham says, like, will not the, God, the judge of all the earth act justly? Then there's a kind of progressive revelation model, which, which there, there are different versions of this that say that God acted differently throughout time or that God is revealed more fully through time. Obvious pros and cons to that are things like it accounts for the narrative progression of scripture. So that's a, a benefit. And, and some of the drawbacks are it can, you know, some of the Marcionite problems can reemerge if you think that sort of later revelations simplistically correct earlier ones, such that you have this kind of move toward clarity in the gospel, in the gospels or in the New Testament out of this sort of obscurity of the Old Testament. And that sort of raises questions around the revelatory value of the Old Testament and, and sets up a kind of hierarchy that is, I think, problematic when thinking about even the gospel. And I'll jump to Greg Boyd real quick. There are other views as well I talk about, but, um, but Boyd is in his Crucifixion of the Warrior God, big two volume book he wrote. He'd been, he's been wrestling with this problem for eons. Uh, Boyd takes what he calls a, uh, I think he calls it a Christocentric view, although it's really a Jesus centric because 
depending on how you think about it, like a crucicentric view would would need to include the pre-incarnate Christ and go all the way through to the final uh, judgment. And his view is more specifically crucicentric in that he says the cross is the final definitive revelation of God. And not only that, but if it's the definitive revelation of God, then we must reread the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament until every image of God that we see looks like the crucified Christ. And so it's not really, I mean, one of the problems is that's not actually a hermeneutic. Uh, in, in, you know, it doesn't lend interpretive clarity to the text it's looking at. It simply st- um, starts with a conclusion, which is that it must look like the cross and, and makes sure that every text eventually does. And so that includes things like when we see horrific violence meted out by God in the Old Testament, then, okay, how are we going to make that look like the cross? One of Boyd's solutions is to say, God allows himself to be misrepresented, and in that sense, allows our sins to be heaped upon him, just like Jesus allowed the sins of humanity to be heaped upon him on the cross, such that he looked like a criminal on the cross. So, he sees a kind of analogy between the two. And and there are a number of problems I talk about and and certainly do more in that five-part review mm. I did. Yeah, I was going to mention that, because so, people can read that online. It's It's still there, yeah. Yeah, so I, I won't get into all of it, but it I think, yeah, it, it does a, a, actually a great deal of damage to the storyline of Scripture. To um, It assumes that the cross itself is some sort of self-interpreting event that can be used to interpret other texts in a, in a straightforward way, as if the cross made sense on its own. Um, in the early church, consistently went back to the Old Testament to make sense of the cross. Um, it's certainly a two-way street, but uh, also, like this, the misrepresentation of God in the Old Testament, that idea that God allows himself to be misrepresented, is not like the cross, if, if that's the case, because it's not sin-bearing, sin bearing, you know, uh, it's not atoning. And that's a, a huge difference in that the cross, Jesus takes on the sin of humanity in a way that atones for that sin. Yeah, a lot more we could get into there. I don't know where, where you want to take it, Chris, but I'll leave it at that. That, that I think, helpfully sets up you then moving into describing your way forward and the strategies that you you develop i mean how in first in general terms in a nutshell mm-hmm. how would you describe your approach yeah there the, the, a couple of things i would say about it first of all it's it's exegetical and and my approach is to sort of read the text slowly and and prepare i say prepare to be surprised in that that the text consistently challenges or surprises simplistic expectations. And that's part of what I see as a need in discussions around violence, including in, in Boyd's book, despite its length, it, it's not always exegetically detailed when it comes to the very text that it's analyzing. Um, it, it's, it's heavy in biblical citations. I'm not, not trying to slight it. And there are some real exegetical insights in the book. But, but I think um, a kind of patient walking through the text before we try to solve the problem, because the, if we assume, okay, here's the problem in this text, how are we going to resolve it? Maybe that text isn't doing what you think it's doing. And so that's where we need to be prepared to be surprised. I also talk about reading toward Jesus as a Trinitarian. 
And the reason I say that is, is that I don't pretend I'm reading Genesis and Joshua in a vacuum without any presuppositions. I'm reading it as a Christian. And, and it's because of the life and ministry of Jesus that I want to go back to the text that shaped him and that formed his sort of curriculum as a Jewish man growing up in Galilee. And, and so if this is the kind of formative educational curriculum for, for Jesus, how is it that it, it leads to someone who lives and teaches as he does? And so that's, that's the sense in which I want to read it toward Jesus. Not that I can sort of point to every text in the Old Testament and say, see, this looks like Jesus identically. You know, there's a strip, there's an arrow just pointing right from every single verse to Jesus. I don't think it works that way. Um, and I also say read as a Trinitarian because anytime we see Yahweh mentioned in the Old Testament, if we're approaching scripture as a Trinitarian, Christ is present. And so the problem of violence in the Old Testament isn't a God the Father question that we pit against a God the Son figure in the New Testament, but it's a it's a Trinitarian problem. And although that point needs uh, kind of nuancing, I think it's important to keep in mind yeah. uh, as we read. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you lay out, don't you, a number of, I mean, you've mentioned a couple already. I'm going to ask you a really unfair question now, you see. It's, you, you've got a few pages where you say, okay, these are the, the keys for moving forward beyond the previous approaches. Be shocked, hear it out, let the whole Old Testament uh, focus our attention, um, read towards Jesus, as you said, as a Trinitarian, check our social location, let the Bible bite back, orientate to mystery, and wrestle for blessing. Now, here's the unfair question. If you had to prioritize just two of those, which would they be? Uh, I'd probably go with, yeah, that is unfair. I, I would, I would say let the Old Testament, fo let's pick two, um, let the Old Testament focus our attention. That, that to me has been a really important hermeneutical posture to take, which is that, that there are, there are sort of narrative fundamentals that we need to bear in mind, like th there's a sort of big picture story moving from, from creation to new creation uh, that that forms a framework within which we understand the particulars. And, and we don't just work out from the particulars to a general thesis about God. And there are fundamental claims about God that are primary relative to other claims. And we could get into like how, why I think that's the case. But um, some, of, some of those fundamental claims about God need to be kept in mind when we are wrestling with violent texts, because the, one of the problems with working on the problem of violence is that you stare at the text so long that it's, it's like you're, you're staring into the blazing sun and your vision gets destroyed in the process. And, and so the Bible, I don't think it's designed to have us do that. I don't think it's an evasion tactic to sort of steer us away from the dark parts of the Old Testament, but it does recognize things as fundamental. I mean, Jesus says like, love God and love your neighbor. All the law and prophets hang on these things. 
that that's a claim about the fundamental imperative of those two things relative to other things. He doesn't say, stone your rebellious son, all the law hangs on that, right? <laughs> like, um, and, and so there's a reason he doesn't. And I think it's because he's reading the Old Testament yeah. well. Now, I it was an unfair question, but one of the ones I thought was quite interesting was Orient to Mystery. And this this is a thread through the book. You come back to it towards the end as well. Um, but you write at the beginning that embracing the challenge of violence as a mystery rather than a riddle to be solved opens new possibilities. And I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I, I kept thinking about the ways, as I was writing this, the ways that the category mystery factored in my thinking about God and violence and scripture. And, and I'm unwilling to go with the divine command theory that, that simply says, you know, God says that that settles it, and I'm just going to surrender it to God and, and acknowledge I don't understand. Um, but we, on the other hand, we do need humility in, in this discussion uh, about God's ways and what we think God has a right to do in the world. And, and as, as you know, Chris, like, mystery is used in, in different senses in the Old Testament, or in the, in the Bible more generally. Uh, in the New Testament, it's, it's something previously hidden, now disclosed um, in the mystery of, of Christ. And, and so, there are different ways that mystery needs to be understood, and I found that important when thinking about violence. So, so one appeal to mystery would be to say, well, we don't understand God's ways. God's ways are higher than our ways, so we just can't know. So, we just have to accept the violence in the Bible. Okay, th there's maybe some truth there. But on the other hand, there, there are different senses in which we need to engage in mystery. One is as something to be pursued that God is, uh, you know, there, in Proverbs it says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the honor of kings to search it out. And, and I think the idea is that there are hidden things of God that are, are hidden in the sense that they're meant to be pursued. And, and that that pursuit is not fruitless, but it's a pursuit that can be engaged in where things can be known. Uh, and as Paul says, that knowing is in part uh, and specifically, he's talking about like, you know, the mystery of the age between now and the eschaton and also um, knowledge of God, even because um, he, he goes on to say, like, we know him in part. So there's a sense in which we know. Um, so there's the epistemological confidence of our pursuit and then in part, which is the humility of the pursuit. And so when it comes to the question of violence, I, I, f I felt like that's the posture that is important. We know in part. And so, we can't just stop at, well, it's all a cloud of mystery, but we also can't run all the way to, okay, we've got it, we've got it worked out, and we can rationalize the, the violent texts, and we've got a good answer for most violent texts in the Bible. I mean, my, my study focused on the flood and conquest, and, and those are case studies, but I, I don't have the same depth of competence with all the violent texts in the Old Testament. There are a lot of them where I'm, they're still in that big pile of texts that I don't know mm. what to do with. Yeah. Well, why don't we turn to some of those texts? So in part two of, of 
your book Sh- Shalom and it's shattering. You get into the flood, and then part three, it, you're turning to the conquest before the final part, where you're talking about the Old Testament and the character of God. But why, why, let's just dip in 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 for these four chapters. You sort of apply those strategies that you discuss in at the beginning. You know, patience, listening to the text, thinking in terms of the whole Old Testament, and you start by focusing on Genesis as a lens to read violent texts relating to the flood. And you write that Genesis puts violence at the heart of all that opposes creation after the first act of rebellion. And perhaps you could say a bit about this, its significance for your argument, and how Genesis perhaps differs from other ancient Near Eastern accounts in this respect. So the Genesis creation account is is notable when read in relation to some of the more popular creation stories that would have been known to Israel. So the Babylonian Enuma Elish and the Ugaritic Baal epic, depending on how you understand the Baal epic. Um, but both of those involve uh, either creation or recreation by violent conquest or violent subjugation of hostile forces that are embodied in, in the water, especially. And out of that comes a sort of stable world. And the idea is that there's something primordial to violence. It's, it's in the very DNA of creation that it's necessary to, to violently subjugate the hostile forces such, so that peace can ensue. And, and Genesis 1 is notable in that it has water, a watery beginning, but the, the waters are not hostile to God. Is they're simply not yet, and the the sea monsters that are mentioned in Genesis one, if you read it literally, um, are told to be fruitful and multiply. So they're they're not violently subjugated and then cart out of their carcass the world made. Instead, they're just told to be fruitful and multiply. And humanity is given a task to rule and subdue, but they're on a vegetarian diet, so it's not killing animals, and. They're ruling and subduing realms that they can't possibly control. You know, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, especially for an ancient person, those, that's it can't be ruled by control. So Genesis 1 sort of sets this backdrop of a, a nonviolent beginning. And it's into that world that as the fruit of sin, violence erupts. And it, it emerges right in Genesis 3 even in that God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and that word enmity is is used consistently in the Old Testament to refer to sort of intent to commit violence. And so, and and there's the, you know, the serpent's going to bite at the heel and the woman, or the offspring of the woman is going to kick at the head of the serpent. So there's this back and forth violence, it's deceptive violence and that it's sneaky. Um, and then that gives way in Genesis 4 to Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother, and then by Genesis 6, it says that the violence had filled the world. So the, that story of er, the eruption of violence plays a lead role in Genesis 3 to 6. And it's thematized, it's put in front of us as readers, as a force that's uh, hostile to creation itself and is the fallout of this re- rebellion against God. Mm. Now, as part of your argument there, you, you get into a really... A really interesting chapter on violence against women in the Bible's prologue, and 
I can only advise that people get it and have a read of of that particular chapter where you get into Nimrod, the man's man, and much more besides. But maybe just to tie tie ends up together better, or at least for for this podcast, um, I wanted to jump towards the end of that section because it builds on what you've just said. You know, to help us understand the flood, you, you apart from noting it isn't likely a literal event. Is, is that it was ultimately God withdrawing the divine life support system, as you put it, that kept creation going in its ruined state. And perhaps you could speak into that off the back of what you've just said. And is your point that it makes God less culpable or are you making a different point? You know, hearing that, I'm like, no, yeah, that, that's not what I'm trying to say, that like because God withdraws uh, his preservation, then he's off the hook somehow that that's better than a direct act but i do think the reason i mentioned it is cuz that's how the story is told and it's notable that that god in the story is less associated with the destructive acts of the flood than with the restorative act of rebuilding creation after it had been ruined so the the key the key idea though is is that, I mean, in the story, the story is insistent that God says, I'm going to put an end to all people. I will surely destroy them and creation. And, and so, the, the story definitely doesn't let God off the hook in that sense. Um, but there is a, an important point about the way that the story is told in, in that the destructive force that ruins creation in the first place is the eruption of human violence that fills the world. And then God looks at the earth, and this is a sort of inversion of Genesis one thirty one. It says, God looked at the earth, and behold, it was ruined. So, creation is ruined before God even sends the flood, and the force that ruins it is violence. And this is where I talk about how, it, how that flood story is engaging with other sort of known flood stories, where there's an antagonist God and a protagonist God. And it's a lot, this, the flood actually works a lot easier when you're not a monotheist. But when you're a monotheist and you have one God, who's going to be the antagonist? Well, the antagonist in the story is violence. And so then God becomes, in essence, the protagonist who uses the flood to restore creation. And I, and I use an analogy of a potter who's looking at the wheel and you know, spinning a pot and they look down and it's full of holes and air bubbles and stuff, you know, that it's, it's now useless because it's been ruined, right? So there's a way of saying something's ruined that gets at a, a sort of uh, destructive element, right? That's what God looks at the earth and he sees it's ruined. Then what the potter would do is turn that clay back to a ball. That's another, you could call that destruction, Right, and that's when God resolves to ruin creation. But that turning to a ball is not, in the sort of broader sense, a destructive act because it's the precondition for recreating it. And that's that's how I think Genesis six to nine, six to eight conceives of the flood. It's God returning the earth back to its watery, watery formlessness in order to remake it. And and with the big caveat in this, that I think this is engaging a sort of known cultural story, not in a, it's not a claim about a, a literal historical event. And we could get into why, but that's, 
that's important to say yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I'm I'm just wanted to get to the quick fire round. You know, this is the only reason I do yeah, these interviews. You know, is just to try and yeah, trip people up in the quick fire round. But there's a there's a lot that's really quite personal in the book. A lot of stories and illustrations that you give. But maybe because we all know you here, maybe you could just <laughs> tell us something about yourself that listeners would be surprised to hear. Oh, um, what would they be surprised to hear? I, I don't know why this jumps to mind, but uh, in college, uh, some friends of mine and I went to Minneapolis and we, uh, we found a cardboard box and I put that cardboard box on and we had a great night out on the town. Like, so I, it, it, we did that thing where like you, you crouch down and, and then someone walks by and you jump up suddenly and the box is moving. And we, I walked into a restaurant wearing this box like covered my whole body and um asked people for their food and um i i got bounced from a bar because <laughs> uh, i tried to walk in in and i as the police officer said i had concealed my identity <laughs> and uh we we staged these like back and forth things where we'd run in front of a window like someone chasing me and i was in the box and then i was chasing them so sort of this back and forth and i don't know it um, probably a few people know that about me, but I, I, I took great joy in it. It was a, it was a great, <laughs> yeah, and undoubtedly an aesthetic improvement as well, of course. Now, so you <laughs> you moved to Canada. One thing about Canada that you prefer over the UK? Oh, one one thing I prefer. I mean, I, the the physical beauty of where I'm living is is pretty hard to beat. Fair enough. You know, to be sh like, so that's not a general claim about Canada. It's about my specific location. So, so hear, hear me in that. Uh, and also Cheltenham was very beautiful. So now I'm backpedaling, <laughs> um, but I'll leave it at that. You're really saying it was a dump now. Okay. Yeah, one thing you miss about the UK. Uh, oh, food is way cheaper. Oh. Like, like Brits believe that they have a divinely given right to like have lemon curd for 43p a jar and fruit and veg is way cheaper i don't understand why an island nation has cheaper food than than canada maybe it's just distribution across this huge country that's low population but food is way cheaper i miss that oh and the people <laughs> i wasn't gonna say <laughs> But thank you for, for adding that last one. Okay, now, if you if you had to, by divine command for the greater good or, or whatever, if you had to inflict divine violence on one of your co-hosts and on script, who would it be? Oh, um, yeah, so it's, a t it's, it's like who to choose. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the question. Um, it's not whether, but yeah. who. You know, I've known Matt Bates the longest yeah, probably Matt. Yeah, and, I'd push him out the airlock for, first as well, I, yeah. It, but mostly, I mean, I'll say this, for disciplinary purposes. Oh, I see. So it's for his yeah. good. Yeah. In, in order to, I don't know, instill a sense of the, the importance of obedience, of law, like uh, those kinds of values that I, I really like to see Matt flourish yeah. in. Learn for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I'm with that one. If you had a chance to hang out with Nimrod, would you recommend he read Wild at Heart? And if not, why not? I, I would say Nimrod 
this is a figure from Genesis 10, who's a mighty hunter before the Lord. I would say, I would say, hey, Nimrod, don't bother. First of all, there's a language barrier, <laughs> but also you already live it out. And so you are wild at heart. You don't need a book to tell you to be wild at heart. That's, that is entirely fair. Okay, one last one. I was a bit alarmed by your story of your severely ruptured disc after kicking off football at one point in, in the book. But I always look at you as someone who's quite fit, you know. So what's your top tip for keeping fit for those of us who relate very much with that story? Of the ruptured disc? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say, you know, when I hit my 40s, I was like, I've got to do more cardio. So you've just got to find something that you love and enjoy and do that thing. And so I actually still play soccer. Um, I play twice a week here in, in Vancouver. And, um, and also I, I really enjoy rock climbing. So I try to, are you an adrenaline junkie? No, mm -hmm. I'm not. I have a, I have a healthy fear of heights. So I, I don't free solo. I don't take big risks, but I do enjoy the sort of puzzle solving aspects of climbing. Well, I think you did well there. I didn't trip you up, sadly. But let's move into part three of the book, which is where you really get. I mean, this is the, I think it's the largest, the longest part of the book where you're dealing with uh, conquest narratives. So maybe let's just, again, let's just dive straight into some of your exegetical moves. You, you know, what's the significance of the, the Hill of Foreskins story? Joshua's encounter with the sword-wielding frenemy, as you put it, all both stories from Joshua 5. What are the significance of these stories for the wider conquest narrative as you see it? Yeah, of course you'd pick that up, Chris, <laughs> of all the of all the details you want to know about the Hill oh, of Foreskins. Yeah, you know. Um yeah, also uh, also known as Gibeat Ha'ar Lot, um, which is a, a nice way of concealing the fact that it's literally Hill of Foreskins. Um so yeah, I pick up on this story because uh, in many, it's part of a larger sequence of preparations that Israel undergoes in chapters one to five in Joshua. They're getting ready for battle, and and I think the story is designed to subvert our expectations about what constitutes getting ready for battle. So, like in chapter one, Joshua gives his big pep talk: "You're about to go in. You're going to take the land." Blah blah blah. And so here's what you need to do. You need to meditate on Torah as, as if that's a good battle strategy. You're going into enemy territory, enemy way more powerful than you. You've got to meditate on Torah day and night. So that's a surprise, right? And when you think of it in terms of war preparation, and then they cross the Jordan River, they're in enemy territory, and there's a sort of delay tactic used in the way that the story is told. And the uh, Joshua says to the people, make for yourselves flint swords and you, know, you think he's going to be like, charge forward, he's, circumcise yourselves. We'll circumcise every male. Um, so you're, you're already in enemy territory. That's, you should have thought of this before and not when you're sitting ducks right before the Canaanites. But yet they do that because meditation on Torah is more fundamental and important. And so there's this kind of wounding before battle that happens that I think is an important statement about the 
the way that the book is trying to foster a certain mindset toward what constitutes power and strength. And then they, Joshua goes and curiously in the text, he's literally in Jericho and at the end of chapter five, before they even battle Jericho, could be translated at Jericho, but he's there and he meets this man who's got a drawn sword. And Joshua asks the sort of binary question, are you with us or against us? And this guy says, neither, but as commander of the Lord's armies, I, I come to you. And so you find out that the Lord's own army commander isn't on the side of Joshua or the enemy. And then Joshua's like, well, what do you command? Still sort of thinking in terms of, uh, are you going to give me orders? I'll, I'll join you or whatever. And he says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. So he bows down and he worships. So the worship is also part of the preparation. So in all these ways, like Joshua 1 to 5 is getting, getting us in this Torah-focused mode to, as readers, and uh, presumably Israelites as well, in order to prepare for what's, what's ahead. And I think that tells you about the nature of the battles to come that uh, the book wants to kind of foster this, this posture and mm, mindset. Yeah, I found that very helpful. And um, of course, it does need to be said that Hillefoskins is, is an entirely legitimate biblical name for a pet. Yeah, Which, exactly. Yes, yeah, so, or or a um, a church or a church, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, um, Rahab is another figure that you mobilise to help us understand the conquest narratives better. Um, what what's going on there? How does this help us navigate the text? So I think you know, in light of chapter one, where Israel's told to meditate on Torah, that one of the things about meditation is it doesn't just mean sort of going into a trance-like state and visualizing Torah, um, but, but actually thinking through it and wrestling with it. And so then in chapter two, the spies go in and they're confronted right away with a Canaanite woman in enemy territory. And, and I think the point of the story is if you've been meditating on Torah well, you'll know what to do about Rahab. Now, a, a sort of flat, literal simplistic reading of the text would say, well, you go back to Deuteronomy 7, and it says um, to leave nothing alive that breathes and show them no mercy. So Rahab, Rahab's got to go. She's a Canaanite. No mercy. Well, that's a flat reading of the Torah. That's not a meditating reading of the Torah. And so I think Joshua 2 is teaching us how to read Torah. And it's also telling us something about the Canaanite Israelite dynamic that the lines don't run between Israel and Canaan in a straightforward way. And so Rahab turns out to be this this sort of Yahweh informed Canaanite who gives this like amazing confession about who God is. And she and her household, in household in the ancient world, can include a lot of people, are saved and preserved. And, and there they become, in a sense, like Rahab, who represents everything that initially you'd think is deserving of opposition, becomes this insider. And then there's a contrast story in Joshua uh, later on with Joshua 7, where Achan is this like quintessential insider who get, becomes an outsider because he, he lusted after the, the wealth of Babylon, which was in uh, Jericho, curiously. So, 
Yeah, the story is setting up this contrast between these two figures and putting them front and center. They're not marginalized in the narrative telling itself. They're put right in front of us so that we have to think about them. And and I think that's part of what it's doing is it's it's messing with our categories of insider and outsider. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're showing how the text itself starts to disrupt certain readings. And, and then you turn to distinguish between what you call the minority and majority report of, of the conquest. Perhaps you could just e- explain that and then, you know, and then explain why the majority report at all. Yeah. Um, so the, w- what I'm calling the majority report, and I'm getting that language from Brad Jerzak, who um, in our conversations he, about this story, he's like, oh, it's, it's the majority minority report. So the majority report are those parts of the story that highlight the fact that Israel was totally successful in their conquest, that God did not fail in any single one of his promises, that they they um, haremed or completely destroyed all the Canaanites, and it highlights the need for total loyalty. So I think I think the majority report is that like maybe unpopular impression of the conquest of what happened. Then there's the minority report, which is all the text in the story that highlight the fact that the conquest was slow, it was gradual, and it was incomplete. And that God, the means by which the Canaanites are going to be demobilized or removed is through slow displacement. Um, And that actually fits closer with the historical reality of how Israel emerged in the land of Canaan. It's even more complicated than that, but it's closer to it. So it, it recognizes the fact that also a lot of Canaanites were included within Israel, the Gibeonites, Rahab and her family, the Gezerites in, in Joshua 16, all the foreigners who were mentioned at the covenant ceremony in chapter 8, and, and so on, Gibeonites. So the minority report recognizes the messy, complicated picture that accounts for, more historically speaking, how Israel emerged in the land. And, and so then back to the question of like, well, why did the majority report? And I think part of its function is rhetorical to highlight the need for total loyalty to God and also to highlight God's faithfulness to God's promises to the people. And so the book actually maintains a balance between what Lisa Ray Beale calls the, in reference to this, the already and the not yet, which we, a concept that's known from elsewhere in scripture too, of having received the promises of God and and all the all the his faithfulness, but also there's a big not yet aspect to it, and and so I think the two together highlight those two things, and and, and part of why the hard hitting majority report is important, I think, is to instill that sense of total need for total loyalty to Yahweh, and it's akin to as as Walter Moberly says. The, those texts in the Gospels where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, or your foot, those texts are meant to be taken seriously, but not literally. And so we don't just say, oh, it's not literal, so we'll, we'll just dismiss it. Mm. Yeah. I didn't really mean it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that informs, doesn't it, your chapter on harem, um, show them no mercy. But maybe we could jump straight to, I think it was a really important chapter, this one, chapter 11. At various points, you're pointing towards it and then pointing back to it as well, where you argue that 
the conquest was really a completion, and this I, I found surprising, was really a completion of the exodus, that it wasn't just an unprovoked attack on simple village folk, as you put it, but was a series of primarily defensive battles against military superior kings. Um, maybe you could just briefly take us through that. Yeah, so an important historical point here is that to to some degree, Egypt still controlled the land of Canaan when Israel went into the land. If we think of Israel's entry into the land in the 12th century BCE. So Egypt is exercising their influence in the land via a network of petty Canaanite kings who are like these local warlords that receive sort of backing and funding and endorsement from the Egyptians in order to maintain Canaan as a buffer place between Egypt and the Hittites. So it's not direct Egyptian land, but it is controlled by them. And we can we even know by um, several campaigns after Israel appears in the land, Egypt was still fighting to maintain control over this land. Um, there was there were several Egyptian campaigns into Canaan. So that that's after Israel's there. So that's one side of it. Is Israel is actually in, in their battles then depicted as going against all the walled cities, which would have been where these Canaanite warlords were. Were they weren't attacking outlying villages and little hamlets <laughs> in the in the land. So they're attacking kings in walled cities, a lot of them backed by Egypt, and also the story itself suggests that all the battles, except for maybe I and possibly Jericho, were defensive in nature. So Israel makes a treaty with the Gibeonites, and then in response to that that treaty with the the Gibeonites, there's a uh, a coalition that gathers in the south to attack Gibeon. And so Israel has to defend the Gibeonites, who are Canaanites, against other Canaanites. Then in response to that, a northern coalition gathers and attacks, and Israel has to defend once again. So most of the battles in the book are defending Canaanites, not even defending themselves, um, although they're wrapped up in that. So that's an interesting dynamic in this story. So when you factor those two things together, these defensive campaigns and Egyptians, Egypt's control over the land, it, it at least changes your picture. It doesn't remove all the violence, but it, it's a different portrait. And in that sense, Israel's still coming out from under the power of Egypt in the conquest itself, which is why I call it the Exodus Part 2. I mean, this doesn't even exhaust what you do in, in Part 3. You also in i think it's a couple of the chapters towards the end of that section you draw attention to the giants and and to the importance of worship to to for want of a better word emphasize the spiritual aspects of of these narratives um in a nutshell um how would you summarize your case there yeah so these were more i would say experimental and exploratory chapters they were fun to write and the idea is that, okay, there are these features in this story that suggest that, for instance, Israel's, a lot of Israel's battles or number of them are against these giant races that occupy the land. And if we read the backstory to those and even look cross-culturally, 
these are those like Nephilim-like demigod figures known from Genesis that were inhabiting the land, apparently. <laughs> I don't know, you know, what we do with that, but it, that's how the story tells it. And, and so, if their battles are against these figures uh, who were representing kind of ancient royal ideals, then Israel's battles are not simplistically against flesh and blood. And so, that's, that's the kind of spiritualizing reading that I was suggesting there. There's a, there's a lot more to that argument, so I don't want to paint it too simplistically. And then also, there's a great deal in the story that portrays battles as a kind of worship scene. Um, it is certainly with the story of Jericho and everything preceding it, the, the chapters three to five, which are really about the ark crossing and the people worshiping, crossing the Jordan. And so I was wondering, you know, in this book that's probably coming together in its final form in the exilic or post-exilic period, when there are no longer Canaanites that need to be dealt with, how is Israel reading this? How are they thinking about how to apply Joshua to their daily life. And I think part of it is recognizing those the spiritual nature of the battle, which is fought through a people who are engaged in worship and who meditate on Torah. All those tools or those weapons that are highlighted early on in the book suddenly become very important for people living under the thumb of the Persian Empire, not thinking about how to overthrow Persia, but how to, to think about their own strength and God's power at work in their community. So that's it, maybe it in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah good job. This leads us, I think, then to part four, and I am conscious of the time running out now uh, while we have you. Um, but um, in part four, you look at the Old Testament and particularly the character of God. And at the beginning of of our time together, you you said, look, there are some things that are central, like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it isn't, uh, what was the example you used? Stone your son, I think it was. Yeah, um, that's not central. That, so Jesus distinguishes between what is central and what is um, peripheral. And you do the same here with thinking about who God is in the Old Testament. And maybe maybe you could speak in, into that. Sure. Yeah. The, um, I, I wanted to pan out from the problem itself to think about the larger question, which is what can we say about God? And that, that is, in, to my mind, at least the question behind the question of violence is like, what can, who is this God? Is God good? And can we trust God? And so one of the things I, I delve into a little bit there in that part of the book is the idea that the Bible itself puts a portrait of God's character at the center for us, just like Jesus does with the law. Love God and love your neighbors. Like, let's start there when thinking about what all the law is about. So, what the what we see in the Old Testament is this important text in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, where God reveals his own character to Moses after Israel had sinned and with the incident of the golden calf. And he passes by Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing uh, forgiveness. And then, and it goes on and it talks about how, um, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, punishes children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. So that character description, it, it plays a very central role in the Old Testament, not just because of its narrative prominence right there in that moment, 
but also because it's quoted about 13 or 14 times within the Old Testament. That tells you something about its importance. It's like, you know, you in New Testament studies, Psalm 110, you know, it has a kind of prominence. And elements of that character formula show up all over the place, including in the Psalms where they become a refrain. And so that tells me that the Old Testament itself wants us to understand the fundamental nature of God's character in those terms. And so we do well to start there when thinking about God's character rather than starting in Joshua or, uh, you know, the show them no mercy text to think about, to build the picture up from there. And again, this isn't an evasion tactic, but it is a recognition of the Bible's own prioritizing and statement about what's fundamental and what's secondary. And in that statement about God's character, his mercy far outweighs his justice and or his judgment. You can't separate the two and how exactly they fit together is a great mystery <laughs> to go back to that word. But the, the Old Testament insists we keep them together, but also not as co-equals that, that mercy vastly outweighs God's judgment and that that's the portrait that needs to sit at the center. And I always tell my students when they want to think about like, what is the God of the Old Testament like? Well, let's listen to the people who lived with the God of the Old Testament as they reflect back on their history and sing about him in the Psalms, like Psalm 103, which, which says, you know, at the end of, our, end of the day, God hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. And it goes on to quote from Exodus 34. So I think, I think that's, um, that's one aspect of what I developed there. Yeah. I, I, I felt one of the key lessons for me reading your book was how you were pushing us through all of these things to scriptural fluency. Um, not just being proficient, but fluent um, in order to pick up on some of these themes and threads to help us better understand things. And I mean, you talk a bit about what you call embedded thinking in, in that regard. And so I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I suppose by now we should really land this um, baby because I've been going through the Pentateuch again um, in my daily devotions. And uh, I'm presently in, in Numbers, just finishing off Numbers actually. And in Numbers 16, there's one of those stories that you read and you think, what is going on here? And, and you admit candidly towards the end of the book that the problem of violence in the Old Testament can't be solved. Um, you know, this is the story where God splits the ground underneath the tents of Korah and kills all of them, including, and the text is keen to point this out, their wives, children, and little ones, because they, you know, they're rebelling against the notions of priesthood and its restricted nature and all the rest of it. I mean, that. That is, is that one of the texts that you think, I, I don't know what I want to do with this one? No, I think they had it coming. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that was perfectly, I think it's perfectly well-deserved. Um, I mean, these children are, are little reprobates. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely one of them. And, and one they haven't really uh, spent a lot of time wrestling with. Um, it is notable in that in the book of Numbers, and this is, I hope, not avoiding the question, but the, there's this consistent pattern of like God's wrath coming and then Moses or Aaron and Moses interceding 
and pleading with God to show mercy. And then in many instances, God does. So there's this like, let's go back to that point of calling the God of justice to act justly. The, the intercessory role of Moses with regard to these events really stands out. And then like after some of these incidents, there's like priestly interventions and then God makes a covenant of peace with the priests. And I've always wondered whether the priestly covenant is not a kind of statement about a different way of then living with God among the people that's characterized by peace. So yeah, it doesn't do anything to deal with the wives, children, and little ones being swallowed up by the ground. But those are just a few thoughts on yeah, that on that yeah, text. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when I was reading that passage myself in devotion, the only way forward for me was to employ sacritic, you know, substance or subject criticism in light of the reality of of Jesus and and so on. And I. I, I'm, I'm brought back to your opening strategies, and, and one of the ones that you emphasized actually at the start is that we can read towards Jesus in a, as a Trinitarian. Do you think um, there's also room for reading backwards from Jesus in that sach critical move? And, and if so, I mean, what would that look like? I do think, let's see, my, my impulse is to resist an easy backward movement that would say, I've got a problem with this text, so I'm going to run into the arms of Jesus, who's going to save me from this text, <laughs> and, 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 and do the kind of move of like sort of flatly rereading it so that it has no revelatory value of its own. And so... I don't know what it would look like to read backwards. So I'm open to that. As long as it's not a um, you, kind of using Christology to solve, to deal with our own discomfort with, with aspects of the Old, Old Testament. I, I also think sometimes Christology is appealed to and uh, as if it will interpret the very texts that give it, that, that give the cross and the story of Jesus meaning. And so um, I'm definitely not for the idea of, of just saying, well, we see on the cross that Christ loves his enemies. So we, what would you do then with this text using that insight? Right? So I think we can maintain that insight and instead go back to numbers and say, I'm not sure what to do with this. So why, why would we need to go back to numbers and undermine that text? as a the, the critical move. So I don't know. Th those are just like thinking, like poor thinking out loud on, on that subject. Yeah. And an immensely I, difficult text it is yeah. as well. Yeah. And I, um, you know, the New Testament has its own challenging portions uh, as well. And so um, you would have to also not just read backwards, but forwards into a number of challenging New Testament uh, texts about judgment and eschatological violence or something like that. So th my preferred mode is to, you know, like when Jesus walks along the Emmaus road, he, he, he's like, how slow you've been to, to see, you know, like it, as if people should have seen that this story leads, leads toward Jesus. He doesn't say like, let me kind of 
show you how my story reworks the whole story of Israel in a, in a kind of undermining way or overturns the whole story. Yes, they needed insight. And so that's where I'm like, yeah, I read the Old Testament as a Christian. That's why I, I think I, I approach it hopefully. And I keep reading until I sort of see the sort of hopeful contours. And then that sense, like, it's a going to Jesus retrospectively reading forward rather than just a simple reading backwards, mm. maybe. Yeah, I think yeah, that was one of the lessons for me in reading, in reading your book is uh, for those of us who would perhaps place a little bit more emphasis on Christology or the reality of Jesus when it comes to the hermeneutics involved, you're going to resist that when it's a, a lazy cop-out <laughs> for, for engaging with the text. Well, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I, I'm never good at these sign-offs. You've done more than me. How do we sign this off? Uh, I think we just you know, thank everyone for listening, and, and they're already tuning out, so the, the music's playing now, so we can just <laughs> say goodbye. <laughs> good to see you again, Matt. Yep. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate. 